You can turn to uh, Matthew chapter 7 and Luke chapter 13. For those of you that are students of the Word and you brought your Bible or you have a device with your Bible and you have notes, we're going to be really bouncing back between those two passages just a little bit. Matthew chapter 7, that's where we're going to be. We're still in the Sermon on the Mount. You know, something strange happened to me this week, and maybe God was trying to give me a sermon illustration. Maybe that was the purpose. Um, A hummingbird got stuck in my garage. Has that ever happened to anybody? Has a hummingbird ever flown into your garage or somewhere? And um, it's actually, yeah, no, no, yeah, yeah. And also the other people that live with me, uh, it happened to them. Same time. It's just crazy. Coincidence? I think not. Anyway, um, yeah, a hummingbird got stuck in our garage. I go out there and I find this hummingbird. And at first it was kind of exciting. You know, hummingbirds are just magical creatures. They're just so amazing how God intricately designed them. They're so small and you can't even see their wings move. And uh, after about four seconds, I I, I did become a little worried. Because you may not notice about me, um, unless I'm going to eat an animal, I'm a softy when it comes to animals. Like, I don't want them to get hurt. I don't want them to, I want them to be happy. You know, I just, I, I, you know, God created them. So I'm a little bit of a softy. And this hummingbird was in my garage, and I, I just decided after a while, like, okay, you, you can't live here. Like, you got to go somewhere else. I don't know how to feed you. Um, you know, I've got kids. You can't be in here. And so I tried to shoo the hummingbird out of the garage. But does anybody know you cannot shoo a hummingbird out of a garage? I didn't know that. It's not that easy. You would have thought this thing was blind. It kept flying up toward the top of the garage. I get out there, and it was like bumping against the ceiling. So hummingbirds, I found out later, uh, love light and white, and they always want to fly up. They want to get away, and they want to go up. But in a garage, obviously, there's a ceiling, and my ceiling had white parts, and I saw the hummingbird bump up against the ceiling where the white was, and and I, I started getting worried, like, how come this hummingbird is not getting out of my garage? It's right there. I opened both of the garage doors. It's still just going along the horizontal tracks of the garage door, just landing, but never going down under and going out. And, and um, so I Googled it, how to get a hummingbird out of your garage. <laughs> I kid you not, that is the exact title of a YouTube video of another guy in Alabama with a hummingbird doing the same thing my bird was doing. And so I'm watching this video, how to get a hummingbird out of your garage, and this guy's like, yeah, this guy won't leave. I don't know what's wrong with him. And then he starts giving these ideas, and then I research hummingbirds. I learn about hummingbirds. There's actually a lot of interesting things about hummingbirds, but one of them is they're really attracted to red. They love red. God's kind of designed them, I guess, to go toward red. I don't know. And so I build this contraption because this hummingbird will just not get out. And uh, I don't know if you could tell what that is. Yeah, yeah. Laugh it up, right? (laughs) Listen, your elders hired me. So that's that's you. That was your choice. Uh, So I decide I'm going to become, you know, MacGyver, and I'm going to try to figure out a contraption. It's like gas tanks are red, gasoline, gas things. 
And I tried to get this red, attractive thing underneath the garage door as it's open so the bird, the hummingbird, will get low enough, eventually see, oh, there it was, this huge door outside to safety. And uh, I left it there, and, and there's more to the story we don't need to get into, but... Uh, yeah, yeah, I mean, it's not all that incriminating. There's just more to the story. The, uh, just in case you're, the hummingbird did end up, we ended up getting it out, and, and that was a little bit more involved. I had to feed a hummingbird with a spoon. Uh, Courtney went online, found out the, yeah, now you guys are so serious. It turned out okay. The hummingbird's fine. Uh, I had to try to feed it uh, sugar water and the whole deal. We worked through it. But anyway, uh, I did everything I could to get that little bird on the right path out of my garage. And I kid you not, it went everywhere in my garage except toward the open door. Everywhere. It just went everywhere. It would not get on the wrong, right path. It went a, flew a dozen different ways except the right way. And, uh, you know, it just reminded me of some of your kids. <laughs> some of your children, not mine. You, you know how, like, there's, there's, there's one right path, and, and you want someone you care about to get on that right path, and you try to lead them toward the one right path, and they just will not go to the one right path. And um, there's a popular idiom that's been used for millennia. It's been used for thousands of years, and it's going down the wrong path. Have you ever used this phrase, this idiom? Going down the wrong path. The path is a metaphor. The whole idea is someone is headed in a direction because of their behavior or actions. The wrong road, the wrong way, that's likely going to lead to failure, danger, or worse. And so you will say they're headed down the wrong path. Now, to get a little more serious for this passage that Jesus preaches... Have you ever had a child that you knew was going down the wrong path? Do you remember how that felt? Or a grandchild? Or a sibling? A family member? Someone you cared about? Has someone that you cared about, you knew they're headed down the wrong path? They, they have not figured out the right path to safety in life. They're headed down a path that's going to destroy them. Do you remember how you felt? You know, I have five children that I love so dearly. Not all of them are Christians. There's a chance that at some point in my life, I'm going to be on my knees with my nose pressed up against the floor, tears in my eyes, praying, Father, please, Get them off the wrong path. Draw them to you. Have you ever felt that way? A kid that lost his way, you wondered if they're ever going to get on track, someone you care about. Is there any way, is it even possible for them to find the right path that leads to life? What do you do in that scenario? What do you do when your heart your concern, your desire is for someone to get on the wrong path. What do you say? What needs to happen? You know, Jesus preaches about that very situation. Jesus knows what that's like. 
As you read the New Testament, think about how many times did Jesus call out to people, you're on the wrong path, repent, turn. This is only going to lead to destruction. You're not going to find life that way. Turn around, I beg you, I plead with you, turn. He knows what that's like. He preaches about that in Matthew chapter 7. Now, there are other places in which Jesus deals with this kind of scenario, but we're only going to focus on this one this morning. Matthew chapter 7. He responds to this scenario in three parts, and I want to encourage you with these three different parts. There are three parts to his response, and maybe one of those is exactly what you need to hear today with whatever God is doing in your own heart, whether he's leading you to himself or he's leading you to someone that needs him. And and I want to encourage you with it because it's the truth. It's the truth and it's not what's being preached in mainstream media. It's not what you're going to hear on the wide path, the road, everyday life. So turn with me to Matthew chapter 7, verse 13. I know it's on the screen. You can read along with me, not out loud. I'll read it. This is what Jesus says. Enter through the narrow gate. For wide, for the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction. And many, and there are many who enter through it. For the gate is narrow and the way is constricted that leads to life. And there are few who find it. Now, I have to admit to you, when I first encountered this passage years ago, I thought that this meant many people are going to go to hell and only few people are going to make it into heaven. But that's not what this means. That's not what Jesus is saying. And as we break down the passage, I want to show you each part what Jesus is preaching and why he's saying this in the Sermon on the Mount. He chooses here to share this. Because in these just two short verses, he introduces two gates, one narrow, one wide. He introduces two ways or two paths. Think of it like a road for them. They're paths. He introduces two. One is very broad and one is constricted. And you have to identify what he means with those gates and those ways and what the description of each really means. What is he saying in giving this sermon to the crowd on the side of the mountain as he's preaching to them? And he preached this multiple uh, multiple times in other towns. And we'll see that too when we get to Luke 13. He preached this sermon many times. What did he mean by the narrow gate and the wide gate? So, in order to understand what he means, we got to break it down. I'm going to break it down in three parts. If you're taking notes, it's easy to think of once you get it. So, in the first part of verse 13, you have the invitation to life. You have the invitation to life. Jesus says, enter through the narrow gate. The very first thing he says is, I'm calling to each one of you. It's plural. It's like, when, like in the South, we'd say, y'all. Y'all enter through the narrow gate. He begins this whole idea of this, these two paths, these two ways of life, and how one leads to destruction, one leads to life. 
He says, enter. So he gives an invitation. He wants everyone to come to this life that he describes in verse 14. He says that leads to life. So he, he gives the invitation. He wants all to enter. Now, the narrow gate is a metaphor for Jesus. He, a metaphor is when you use a term that you don't mean literally. It's symbolic to mean something else. So he says, enter through the narrow gate. If you were five years old, you'd hear that and you'd go, what gate? And you'd look around for a physical, like, wooden or metal gate. But he's speaking of something else, and he's really speaking of himself. We see this really clearly in John chapter 10. In John chapter 10, verse 7, Jesus said again, Truly I tell you, I am the, I am the gate for the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers. I'm really the entrance. I'm the way to this life, this eternal life that people need. We all need life. And I'm the way. And there are other people that offer a different way. It's a different gate. Think of a different entrance. There's a, there's a different way, but they're thieves and robbers. Thieves and robbers do not have your best interest at heart. He says every other way there is, every other entrance is not going to get you to the life. Instead, it's going to lead you to harm and destruction. But the sheep doesn't listen to them. The sheep who know me, who enter through me, who enter through the gate, who put their faith in Jesus, they trust Jesus for, for life and answers for the truth. Those that trust Jesus, they don't listen to the thieves and robbers. They know there is no other entrance into the right path and to the path that leads to life because they found the one true entrance, the one true gate, the one true way. He says again, I am the gate. I am the gate. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved. I'm going to try that again. If, if anyone enters by me, he will be saved. It's so great when we repeat Scripture back together because you know what? Sometimes it takes multiple times for people to get it, and there's nothing more important. People need to know, if you enter, if you receive the invitation, you will be saved. Whatever it means to enter through the gate, if you do that, you will be forgiven. You will have your sins forgiven. You will be made right with God, we find out later. You will be saved. And, and this is so great, Saved is great enough. Then he says, and we'll come in and go out and find pasture. This is a description of a fat, happy sheep that has found good grass and life and care and nurture. I want to be a fat, happy sheep. That's what I want to be. And I'm, pr I'm pretty close. I'm so close to being that. <laughs> but I do in the way that Jesus means it. I want to be full and satisfied of what he offers. I want to be cared for by him. I want to be known by him. I want to be forgiven of all my sins. I want to be made right with God. And I know on my own, I'm never getting there. And that's what Jesus preaches. There's no other way. You got to enter through him. Meaning, and if you're new to church, let me try to use non-churchy words. God is God the creator. He created everything. The stars, the universe, the earth, the animals, the plants. 
everything. He created everything. And he created mankind. He created the human race. He created you. He made you. He gave you life. And he loves you. And in the Bible, he tells us when we disobey him, when we turn away from him, when we sin, it creates this separation between us and God to where we're not good with God. We're not okay with God and we're not going to be with him. If we die that way, separated from God, we stay separated from him forever. That's the bad news in the Bible. But the bad news makes the heart hungry for good news. The good news is he loves you and he doesn't want you to stay that way. And he sent his son Jesus to die on the cross to take your punishment for your disobedience and your rebellion toward God. If you know you've sinned, that's a good thing. It's healthy to understand, I have done wrong. God says, I sent my son to die in your place because the wages of sin is we earn death through our sin. And that death separates us from him. But the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. He offers us a gift of his son that if you put your faith in him and say, I have sinned, I have done wrong, I do believe that God is, exists, that he's true, and that Jesus, his son, is who he says he is, and that I need to be forgiven of my sins. As crazy as that seems, that is the good news that Jesus came to die. He did it. And if you would turn to him and say, God, please forgive me. I'm putting my life in your hands. I'm trusting you for forgiveness. Jesus promises, I will forgive you. You will be saved. That's what Jesus means by enter through the narrow gate. Enter through me, meaning put your faith in Jesus to be forgiven. And that's what Jesus preaches. He will be saved. Now, now go back to Matthew chapter 7, verse 14. He says, the gate leads to life. Now, this is, I know we looked at uh, another passage. We looked at John chapter 10. But even in Matthew chapter 7, when he says life, in, his, in this language, there's two words for life. One word, it's Koine Greek. One word is bios. Does that sound familiar to you? That's where we get the word biology from. Biology is the study of what? Of living thing, of life, of living things. So biology, that's where we get our word biology from. That's a word for life. That's not the word that Jesus uses here. He's not speaking about just physical, biological life where you're breathing and your heart is pumping and your brain is functional and you have life. He uses the word zoe. I know we, sometimes we say the word zoe and it means transcendent life or spiritual life. When Jesus preached this sermon, he said the gate is narrow and the way is constricted that leads to zoe. It leads to spiritual, internal life. That's what Jesus wants for us. Have you ever known someone that you knew was on the wrong path, but it wasn't just their actions, they were dead inside. They were missing something. It's like they weren't alive internally. I'm not talking about biologically biased. I'm talking about Zoe. Like They did not have spiritual life. They had no peace with God. They had no living hope. Their spirit was dead. I was like that once. And I remember, I remember what it was like to be hopeless and to know I was not at peace with God. 
I remember what it was like to look for happiness and satisfaction in the world. I remember vividly that emptiness, that hidden secret feeling that I didn't want others to know, that I hated my life and I hated my family and I didn't know where to go and I couldn't be satisfied and I didn't even like me, let alone everybody else. And I wanted hope. I desperately was hungry for peace and I could not find it in any of the stuff that the commercials were selling. I couldn't find it in anything the world had to offer. And then when I was 16, by God's grace, the good news became good news to me. And I realized, I need Jesus. I need Him. I remember yelling in the prayer, God, I will never be a good Christian. I knew it. I knew it in the deepest part of me. I'll never be a good Christian. I know some of you grew up in Christian homes and traditionally and Mennonite and other ways and you feel like your life was good and your parents taught you good things and maybe you felt like morals were were wonderful. I'll tell you, if you don't have Jesus, all that's dead. It will gain you nothing. You could have the whole world but if you forfeit your soul, what do you really have? To, what have you really gained? I remember being dead inside, and I remember coming to life when I chose to enter through the narrow gate. I said, Jesus, I believe that you are who you say you are. Would you forgive me of my sin? And would you save me from me? I am the sinner, and I need grace and mercy. Save me. Either let me die or save me because I can't do it on my own. I remember that Wednesday night back in the summer when I turned 16 years old. I have never been the same since because I entered through that gate. That is what Jesus wants for everybody. That is the invitation. Come to him. Come to Jesus. Put your faith in him. He is the way to be made right and he's the way to life. When people are on the wrong path, they need to know that God loves them and that God genuinely wants them to have real spiritual life. And in the rest of verse 13, we have the second part. Jesus gives the warning. Jesus gives the invitation. He doesn't even explain it yet. Jesus doesn't say, hey, let me tell you everything about the narrow gate. He doesn't even tell people how to enter through the narrow gate yet. He warns them. He gives an invitation, but then he warns them. Enter through the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction. And there are many who enter through it. Here, Jesus introduces the wide gate and the broad way. What does he mean by a wide gate? So you kind of have to go back a little bit in time, 2,000 years ago. They didn't have buildings and structure like we have today. Gates were very common, and they were different kinds of gates. There were some gates that were the gates in the uh, gates into a city. They were huge gates. You can pull a carriage through it. You can have multiple beasts of burden entering through big city gates. And there were some gates, some doors, some entryways that were tiny, that were small, that could barely fit someone like me, that Pastor Will would have to duck down low and get in. There were some gates that were narrow. So he's using this illustration of 
There is a wide gate, and it's extremely wide as he describes it. This is a very wide gate, meaning that many people can walk through it at the same time. You don't have to be in single file line like a narrow gate. You can enter through the same gate in different places. I want you to remember that phrase because a lot of people misunderstand this passage. A wide gate means you can enter through it at many different places. Way over here to the left, you can enter the gate, and way over there to the right, you could enter the gate. Don't think a single little gate. Think that someone way over there to the left can enter the gate, and it looks completely different than the guy way. If there was a gate from that side of the room to that side, think that way. A huge gate. Someone over there can walk through the gate and not even notice this other guy over here walking through the gate. And their gate might be rocky and no vegetation. And this part of the gate might have vegetation and flowers and an animal. Here in the middle, it might have some water and some other things. The point of the wide gate means you can enter that one gate in many different places. Many different places. And then he says... And the way is broad. Now, the way is, might be translated path or road. It's a, it's a roadway. It's a pathway. It's broad. That means that it can be traveled in many ways. Uh, if you go back to Israel, their context, the way that they would travel from the north part of Israel to the south, you could either go kind of like a direct line through the mountain ridge, and there are paths and valleyways through that, but the elevation changes dramatically, or you can stop just near Galilee, you can go east to the Jordan River, and along the Jordan River, there is a flat elevation, a big wide plain that most people travel down because it's easy. Grandma can walk on it. Little toddlers can walk on it. No one's getting exhausted. The elevation's not crazy. It's a nice level path, and it's super huge. You could have a Malachites on this side closer to the mountain ridge or like in Getty down toward Jericho or uh, the, the mountain goat side that's talked about um, in, in, with King David where he hid. You can, you can travel along the mountainside and Hundreds of yards over here, a bunch of Egyptians could be traveling down that same broad way and they never even talk to each other. They don't even have, now they, they'll be able to see each other. But Jesus is describing something that they're familiar with. The path is so wide that each person's experience on this path can look drastically different. Now, that's important, understanding it. The gate is so wide, you can enter it at almost any point. Imagine if a gate was the size of Texas, and the whole world was just Texas. And if you're from Texas, I know you already think that, but that's actually not true. But just imagine the gate is as wide as Texas, okay? And you could get there, if, let's say the whole world is Texas, and you could get there from any point in Texas. And, and here is a different side. The point that Jesus is saying is, the guy over here on the right going down this path might have a life and an experience that looks nothing like the guy way over here on the left traveling the same path. And the gate and the path lead to destruction. Whether you come in over there or you come in over here or you're traveling this way or traveling on that, you can have different experiences. There's many different ways and they all lead to destruction. And he says, and there are many who enter through it. What Jesus is saying simply is, and I know this is going to sound so simple, but this theology is important for the church. 
There are many different ways to hell. And it's easy for people to find a way there. You don't even have to go looking for it. There are many ways to destruction, to hell, to to stay separated from God. And they might look totally different. You might have an atheist over here, an agnostic over here, a Buddhist over here, and a Muslim over here. They might have different experiences in life with spirituality and faith and beliefs, and they might treat their family different and community. They might live totally different lives, but they're on the same broad way entering through any, you can enter through it anywhere, they're on the path to destruction. They're headed for destruction. There are many different ways to hell. Now, I know it's a sobering doctrine, and we don't like to talk about it all the time, but just remember, Jesus spoke about hell more than anybody else in the Bible, and he did it because he loved people. Let it sink in. Let us have sound doctrine at Grace Community Church. There are many different ways to hell. There's only one way to heaven. That's what Jesus is saying. This is important because have you ever been tempted by someone who's like, you know, I just, I, I, take, I take a little bit of what I think is good from each faith and just the best of the best, the gems and the jewels and the gold nuggets, and, and I learned this from Buddhism and this from the Muslim religion, I learned this, and, and I just think, you know, if I just do the right things and if I just live the right life, you know, God's going to see that, he's going to see my effort and he's going to be like, you know, this is a good guy and I'm going to enter into heaven. You know how many people think like that? Way more than you would you would initially just naturally think. So many people think that. You know how many young people that, you know, one of the trademarks of the next generation coming up, one of the trademarks is let everyone just be who they are and don't criticize, don't judge, don't say anything about it. Accept everybody. That's the new trademark. And by acceptance, what they mean is you have to agree that their way of life is good or okay. That's a lie. That is a bold-faced lie. There are so many ways to go to hell. There are good ways to go to hell. There are spiritual ways to go to hell. There are, I tried my best, ways to go to hell. It's, the gate is super wide. You can enter to it from anywhere, and the, the way is broad. A lot of people are traveling, and they're headed directly toward hell, and they don't even realize it. And they say, but my life looks different than that person Yeah, you're at different parts on this super wide path, but everyone on this path is leading to one place. There are many ways to hell, but there's only one way to heaven, and that's the narrow gate. That's what Jesus is saying, and it brings us to the third part. You have the challenge for the believers. There's many ways to hell. There's only one way to heaven, and this is a challenge for us. He says in verse 14, For the gate is narrow, and the way is constricted that leads to life, and there are few who find it. What does he mean by that? Well, when he says the gate is narrow, that word for narrow, the Greek word stenos, it means narrow in dimension. It's like a 3D understanding. It means there it's compacted, meaning uh, only one person can get through at a time. Only one person can get through. What Jesus is teaching is there's an exclusivity to Christianity. There's an exclusivity to salvation. There's only one way to be saved. It's narrow. Only one person can get in. Uh, No one gets to heaven another way. There's only one name given under heaven by which we must be saved. And who is that? 
There's no other way. Everybody headed in has to come in the same way. That means you can't get to the gate over there and over here. There's only one single file narrow gate. It's very personal, meaning like if you had a narrow gate to them, they're thinking, man, that's, that's like a gate to a house. That's like the gate to a house. When you go in this narrow pathway and you go in. Uh, some of you think of like amusement parks, Silver Dollar City, Cedar Point, uh, Six Flags. Have you ever been in one of those lines where eventually it gets narrow and you have Disneyland or where, and you have to go single file line to get where you need to go? They make the entrance narrow because they need to count every single person and you alone have to be examined. You can't like go and be like uh, hide and sneak in through a big broad way. It's a, it's a narrow gate. It's exclusive in that there's no other way to get there and it's personal. But with the exclusivity of it, because it is very exclusive, there's only one way to heaven. Think about how inclusive it is. There is no other religion that offers what Christianity offers. Um, anybody can be saved. Is that not true? Anybody can be saved. If any person puts their faith in Jesus, will they be saved? You tell me, church. Is this true? Is this sound doctrine? Will you, will, could any per, it doesn't matter what you did, what sins you committed, it doesn't matter how tall you are, how short you are, your background, your culture, your DNA, your abilities, your skills, your intellect. If you put your faith in Jesus, if anybody on the planet puts their faith in Jesus, will they be saved? Yes. There is no other religion that's that inclusive. All it takes is a faith in Jesus. No other religion offers just a faith that truly saves them of their sin and offers God as a sacrifice for your sins. There is no other. And so it's very inclusive, even though it's exclusive. And I like to think about it like the difference between a Hollywood private club and a Chick-fil-A. A Hollywood private club, only certain people can get in. It doesn't matter how much you want to get in. You can go to the door and be like, please let me in. And they're like, no, you're nobody. You're not getting in. You can't get in. It's, that is exclusive in such a way that not everybody can get in. But a Chick-fil-A, anybody can go to Chick-fil-A. That's called common grace theologically. That's for sinners and saved people alike. Anybody can get in and get that goodness. It's for everybody. Everybody's invited in. And so Jesus' Jesus's offer to the narrow gate is exclusive in that there's only one way to heaven. There's not multiple ways. And it's inclusive. Anybody can come in through that gate. Anybody. Any of you. If you just give your life to Jesus, if you put your faith in him. Uh, later, when Jesus was speaking to his disciples, he said in John chapter 14, verse 6, he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. You can't be saved another way. If another religion, like the Muslim religion, they say Allah is the same God as the God in the Bible. That's not true. That's a lie. It's deception. The God of the Bible is God the Father who sent Jesus, his son, not as a good prophet, but as the son of God, God in the flesh, taking the sins of the world. And it's only through faith in him that you could be saved. That is not the Muslim faith. So when politicians even try to say, oh, it's all the same thing, it's all okay, just be kind to each other and accept each other, that's a lie. Now, you should still love each other and be kind to each other, but you don't have to believe a lie. 
There's nothing honorable in believing a lie. And so Jesus said, I'm the only way to be right with God. And so he says, the gate is narrow. And then he says, the way is constricted. Or your translation might say hard, but that's a bad translation. That's a difficult translation if it says hard. Uh, The way is constricted that leads to life. Constricted, the Greek word is thalibo. It's really hard because you use the T-H and an L right next to each other. It's hard for English-speaking people to say it. It means to compress or crowd close against. In other words, the way is crowded. It's not a path that's, that everybody has been on and it's really wide like a highway. It's a narrow, single-file long path, but it's crowded. Uh, think about it like, have you ever seen a movie where people were traveling alongside a mountain like maybe Lord of the Rings, they're going alongside whatever mount that is. I'm not a big fan, so I don't know all the names. But you know, the, the dwarf and the elf and all those people, they're like going on the side of the mountain. Everybody has to use those exact steps because that path is constricted. That means everybody's experience along that path is the same. What Jesus is saying is the way to heaven, to real spiritual, eternal life, that Zoe, that that spiritual life, that way has common, similar attributes because it's in the one faith. It has one law. There's only one Bible given. There's one set of rules. And this is difficult for contrarians to accept. It's difficult for people that are a little rebellious in nature to embrace. There is one way to heaven and there's one way to live the Christian life. Now, there's a diversity in the way we do things because we are diverse, but understand what I mean. Let me give you an example. Go to Ephesians chapter 4. Go to Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 4. Paul is writing about the same idea of diversity within the church, yet the unity. He says, There is one body and one spirit, just as you are called to one hope at your calling. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. One God and Father of all. There's not multiple gods and there's not different versions of God. There is truly only one who is above all and through all and in all. People who follow Jesus have the same faith They have the same spirit. They have the same Bible that requires the same way of life. There truly is a single file path that everyone must travel if they're following Jesus. There's not many different ways to follow Jesus. There's one way to follow Jesus, and that's obeying his word. That's what Jesus is teaching. He's talking about the experience. We all have the same hope. We have the same gospel call. We have the same spirit, the same faith. And that's what Jesus offers. It cannot look different for someone else in the sense of they have a different Jesus. If you have a different Jesus, you have a different faith. That's why we have something called cults. Cults are not denominations. They're called cults because it truly is deviating from the one faith that is offered in that religion. So let's give an example. Jehovah's Witnesses, they follow a cultish path because they break off of Christianity and say Jesus is somebody who the Bible does not say he is. That's when we divide, when there's a different faith. We only divide and separate when there truly is a different spirit, different faith, different hope, different God the Father. So that's Jesus' point. It's, it's, uh, the, way is, the way is constricted. It's one faith, one set of rules, all that. And there are few who find it. A few oligos means small in number. There's only few who find it. Now, does this mean only a few people get saved? Is that what Jesus is saying? When he uses the word find, 
Does he mean, and listen, only a few people are going to be saved? Well, I got good news for you. There was a guy who followed Jesus who had this same question. He had this exact same question. We don't know how long he had been following Jesus, but he had been following Jesus long enough. He heard this sermon and then spoke of it and said, hey, hey, it's in Luke chapter 13. If you want to go there, Luke chapter 13, verse 22. Uh, a guy, Jesus was preaching and one of the guys was hearing his teaching. And uh, in verse 22, it says, Jesus went through one town and village after another, teaching and making his way to Jerusalem. He went through hundreds, a couple hundred different towns. He's, wake, he's making his way toward Jerusalem. And one of, the guys, one of the guys speaks up and he goes, Lord, I have a question. And Jesus looks at him and he's ready to answer him. He goes, okay, I've been listening to your sermons. I've been listening to you preach. I've been listening to this. And when you speak about the narrow way and there are a few who find it, I have a question. Is it true uh, that are only a few people going to be saved this guy had that exact same question because as he's listening to jesus he's like not everybody's following him not everybody's embracing this and receiving this are there only a few people that are going to be saved and i want you to pay attention to his answer because jesus does not say yes he does not give an affirmative answer he doesn't even ask a jew jewish the way that jewish teachers would teach sometimes they'd ask a question where the answer is implied or it wants you to lead a certain way. He doesn't even do that. He answers him in a way where he doesn't say, yes, there are only a few people who get saved. Listen to his focus, what he says. He turns the focus on the hearers. Jesus said to them, verse 24, make every effort to enter through the narrow door because I tell you, many will try to enter and won't be able. You stop worrying about how many people are going to be saved. You, and he uses you plural. In the South, we'd say y'all. Y'all enter through the, make every effort, do everything you can personally to make sure that you come through Jesus. Because I tell you, here's, here's the warning in this passage, many will try to enter and won't be able. Do you believe that? Do you believe that there comes a time when someone cannot be saved? There is going to come a time, Jesus was very open about it, there will come a time when the door is shut and people are going to be standing there and they're going to be saying, wait a minute, I made a big mistake. I, I, I did not put my faith in Jesus and I'm in trouble. And they're going to be banging on that door saying, please let me in. That's what Jesus is saying. There's going to come a time when it's too late to turn to Jesus. Think about the urgency and the warning that Jesus is giving. There is a time when it's too late. Once the homeowner gets up and shuts the door. Now, if you study the rest of the New Testament, you realize there comes a time when Jesus comes back, it's too late. When Jesus shuts the door, when you die, it's too late. There will come a point when you cannot turn to Jesus. Then you will stand outside the door you will stand outside and knock on the door saying, Lord, open up for us. And he will answer you, I don't know you or where you're from. That's a different kind of phrase that we don't use. I don't know you, meaning personally I don't know you, and I don't know where you're from. Now, no one would say that. What Jesus, Jesus is not saying, and I don't know you're from Newton, Kansas. That's not what he'd be saying. I don't know where you're from is a way they would say, uh, you're not from here so you don't belong here. That's what Jesus is saying. 
I don't know you and you don't belong here. Think about how sobering that is. There comes a point when people want to turn to him and he's going to say, it's too late. I don't know you personally and you don't belong here in heaven with me. Now, is this unloving? How important is this truth? How urgent is this call, this invitation for people to enter through life? Because at some point it's too late. At some point, people will wish they received eternal life and salvation. And Jesus says, many. If you, if you look at the verse 14, many will try to enter. Does that mean that most people will try to enter? No. Many does not mean most. Many simply means many. To Jesus, it's too many. If it were one person, too many. Many people are going to want to be saved at that time and I am not going to relent and I'm not going to turn away and I will judge them and I will send them to destruction. Think about how, how extreme that doctrine is. There comes a point when it's too late. I don't know you and I don't know where you're from, meaning you don't belong here. Then you will say, verse 26, Jesus already knows what people will say when that happens, when he says it's too late. Then you will say, we ate and drank in your presence, and you taught in our streets. In other words, I went to church. I heard the sermons. I went to Sunday school. I, I heard the truth. You, I was with you. I was there. I was present. I, I, was, I was there. Doesn't that count? Doesn't that make me saved? Doesn't that make me right with God? I went to church, and Jesus' answer is no. Just going to church does not make you saved. Being a good person does not make you saved. Following spiritual leanings does not make you saved. This is so important for today. There's only one way to be saved and people need to know it because at some point it's too late for them. That's what he's pleading with you. At some point it's too late. Don't you know how important this is? Because they won't get saved later. They won't have a chance Later, once he returns, once they die, the door is shut and it's too late and they're going to go to hell. Don't you care? Do you hear that in his sermon? Do you hear that in doctrine? We, we treat doctrine like it's boring. Who cares about the truth? Facts are important because people's lives matter. It is true there's only one way to heaven and they're not going to get there unless you go out and tell them. That's the challenge to the believer. Do you feel the challenge in Jesus' teaching? He's going to say, I don't know you or where you're from. Get away from me, all you evildoers. In English, we have an exclamation point. Think about a rabbi, a Jewish teacher, yelling out to the crowds, I'm going to tell you. And notice how he points it back to them. He says, then you will say. He doesn't want you to think about other people. He wants you to think about yourself. Are you saved? Are you going to say something different? You're going to stand at the door and knock, not them. You're going to be there, and then you will say, I thought I was good, I thought it was okay, and I'm going to say, you're an evildoer. Think about what he was teaching them, because he's wanting to teach us. He wants us to understand this doctrine, this truth that's so important for us, because right now, as any point in my history, right now, I am the most tempted to say, eh, maybe you don't have to believe exactly like I believe. Maybe you don't have to, you know, just everybody, it's, maybe it's wider than that. It's not wide. 
It's, it's not many ways. There's one way. It's very specific. It's only through Jesus. The reality is the path they chose was not the narrow road that leads to life. It's a life of practicing sinful lifestyle. And what do we see around us? What are we tempted with? Are we on the right path? Jesus is giving an urgent call. It's not small to say many will enter through it. A loving God's heart is bleeding in that moment. Many are going to find it. It's easy. There's only one way. What are you doing about it? What are you doing about it? He says in verse 28, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. You know what that means? It doesn't mean they're hurt. It means they're angry. Weeping and gnashing of teeth means they're upset. They're bitter. They're watching people enter. Read it. In that place, there'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves are thrown out. You're going to be standing out there and you're going to be upset. How come they go in? And how come they didn't tell me? How come they didn't tell me how urgent it was, not that I'm a good person, but that I put my faith in Jesus or I am damned? I, I need salvation. It's desperate. My, the, the stakes are high. My soul is on the line. Eternity is at stake. They will come from east and west, from north and south to share the banquet in the kingdom of God. You are going to be gritting your teeth, gnashing all these people from different walks of life, from different nations and tribes and tongues that are all, all singing to God, entering into the promised land. They're entering into heaven. And the only thing that's true about all of them is that they enter through the narrow gate. They put their faith in him. They believed on him. And the people that are standing outside knocking and it's too late are going to be weeping and gnashing their teeth, angry and bitter and upset. How come I didn't know? How come you didn't tell me? What are you doing with this message that is so severe people's lives are at stake? You're going to see all these people that come to Christ, a number that no man can count from every tribe and tongue and nation. And you, you feel the challenge that Jesus was giving. Go back to Matthew chapter 7, verse 14. He says, The gate is narrow and the way is constricted that leads to life, and there are few who find it. The word find, eurisco, a Greek word, it means to come upon something either purposefully by searching for it or accidentally, like you just happen to stumble upon it. You know what Jesus is saying? People are not going to accidentally get into heaven. They're not going to stumble through life and receive eternal life. They're not going to accidentally, just by chance through nature, get into heaven. There's only one way they're going to get into heaven, that's through faith in Jesus, and there's only one way they're going to know about Jesus, and that's the church. That's us. That's you. The point Jesus is making, people are not going to discover it on their own. There are few who find it. It doesn't mean there's few who get saved. Jesus is making a point. This narrow gate that's over here, most people are going to be entering through the wide gate. They won't know about this gate. You have to tell them. You have to go out there and tell the good news. You have to share that the kingdom is coming, that Jesus came, that he died on a cross, that he died for your sins. 
You are the ambassadors. You are his hands and feet. You are the ones that need to desperately, urgently tell people, there is a heaven, there is a hell, there is a God. He loves you. He sent his son Jesus. You need to be saved, not you need to be more comfortable. Not you need to be liked, not you need to be accepted, not, to, not you need to not be anxious. You need salvation from your sins. We are the ones, the church is the hope of the world because God has handed the message to us to share. How many testimonies have you heard that said this? I'd given up hope. I didn't have any peace and I was looking for life. I searched for everything that the world had to offer. I believed in every commercial. I tried it, drugs, sex, food, uh, different ways, family, tradition. I tried all the things. I tried to gain enough money. I tried to gain enough prestige. I tried to gain enough this. I tried to gain enough that. I looked for it and what did I end up with? I was empty. I had nothing. And then almost always they say this, but then someone told me about Jesus. Somebody stepped into my life and cared about me and said, the hope you're looking for, the one hope, the one faith, the one God, that's Jesus. Somebody shared the good news with me and that changed my life forever and I was saved. Think about that. How many testimonies are that way? It's on us to share that good news. People are not going to find Jesus on their own. They're not going to find him on accident. It's few who find it. We need to be the one directing people to the gate. That's his point. Another time Jesus was preaching, he said, the harvest is plentiful. The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. So many people are ripe, and they're ready to receive. They, want, they need the hope and the peace and the life that God offers them. They need the good news. The harvest is plentiful. You know what's not plentiful? The workers. The workers are few. That was Jesus' teaching. There's not enough people going out there and telling people. It's not the same thing I invited them to church. There's nothing wrong with inviting people to church. But do you know that this gathering was not meant to be uh, a Christian Christians were meant to be Christians. You are the church. You're supposed to go out there. This is meant to be the huddle in which we encourage one another and spur one another on to good deeds. Every moment of our lives, the Christian life is lived out there. We have to be going out there in the community telling them this good news. I, I began the sermon telling you when I talked about the hummingbird. Uh, you know, there's only one path. And maybe you have a child or a grandchild or someone that you care about that is on the wrong path. You love them, you care about them. They need the invitation, the warning, and the challenge. They need all that. And you hear this message that the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. I want to challenge you with this. Because this could be me. This could be me in 10 years. How could I dare be hypocritical and pray, Lord, Send someone to my child so that they might be saved. Send someone to, to put them on the right path. Send someone to save them from the wrong path if I'm the very reason why the workers are few. If I'm one of the people that sits here and does not go out and reach the lost, how hypocritical would it be for me to ask God to go save them if he's asking me to go reach 
his loved ones. There's only one way to heaven. There's many different ways to hell. The call is urgent. People need to know this doctrine is so important. You can't get to heaven any other way. And the church is the hope. It's on us to give the invitation now. Because Jesus died and rose, and now we are the only plan he gave. It's our job to go out there and tell them. The harvest is plentiful. The workers are few. Are you part of the reason the workers are few? Let that convict you. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your invitation to life, to eternal life. Thank you for your warning. Thank you for your passionate pleas to people. Thank you for not being soft on hell. Thank you for calling people out as evildoers and, sh- and crying and weeping and showing the love that you have. I think about the time that you looked toward Jerusalem and just had that feeling in your gut, you wished to gather them like a hen gathers her chicks, but they would not turn to you. Thank you for revealing your passion and your love for the lost. Would you help us to be your hands and feet? Would you help us to go out and give the invitation, this gospel call to our neighbors that desperately need you? And would you save the lost? Would you start a revival here? Use us to go out and do your work. We love you because you first loved us. It's in your name we pray, amen.